Fog, froth and foam, insubstantial matters and substantive atmospheres By Esther Leslie 2021 Lately, my thoughts keep revolving around vague entities, almost qualities rather than things, but they are things, vague things, soft matters, fog, froth and foam. These interstitial, fuzzy, indeterminate entities, gas suffused with particulates, gases trapped in bubbles, either pliable, breakable or solid, a mass of bubbles on the surface of liquid, caused by agitation or fermentation, perhaps, these airy suspensions keep nagging at me. I see them in new photos of tear gas attacks on protesters. I see them in the frothy coffees that hiss from every cafe. I see them in the high-definition images from telescopes aimed at distant nebulae. I see them in the air, thick with pollution, air so thick you could cut them with a knife. I suppose it is an extension of my obsession that has grown over the past years, an obsession with the cloud. I tracked a patch of nebulousness from its airy-fairy existence in the sky, its watery, melted coexistence in Constable's watercolors, its dark, gloomy imprecision that affected corruption and doom in John Ruskin's storm cloud of the 19th century, its promise of better days in Hollywood logos, its subtle presence in films, made visible in animations because the clouds must be drawn, and so they must move or be still, be cliched or naturalistic. This concern with clouds found another form in the ever more publicized, but strangely intangible presence of the cloud, sold to us as a fuzzy storage space above the real clouds. It takes a while to realize this fuzziness is an obscurity of its origins. It masks something concrete, that is, the physically robust and energy-hungry data infrastructure, a network of hubs and servers. Here we are in the midst and midst of the clouds, which might be imagined as cartoon-like, fuzzy cotton or woolly, but equally as a tangible tangle of cables, wires, lines, or, perhaps too, as their opposites, grids, triangulations of points, angular things, that are the reflex of digital cartography satellite imaging and geographic information systems. The cloud led me to the fog. Think about the cloud and it encompasses you. You find yourself in a fog. Not just the fog of London or any other urban particular. You are in the particulate, the fog of pollution, of bad air, of atmospheric gases suffused with particles of dusts. This fog is not the fog of too much moisture on land or the fog that is the cloud on the ground. It is a new fog, the fog of the 21st century. The fog that surrounds us now is a blurry, all-encompassing atmosphere in which nothing can be seen, nothing mapped, nothing communicated. At least not for us. It is the fog of computing. This fog makes us blind, though not our many devices. The fog of computing emerges as a new phenomenon, a new nature, just as Ruskin's storm cloud, plague cloud, and black cloud were seen by him as a new natural phenomenon brought about by social, moral, and economic forces. The fog of fog computing is being worked on in our environs, as cities adopt the protocols of smart infrastructure, services, data collection and analysis. This intelligent fog is hyped as if it were akin to the primordial froth that cooked up the amino acids that eventually became human. An Internet of Things sets objects in communication with each other, 
and out of their needs to communicate comes the fog of tangles and capacitors, which becomes a network, a smart grid, a fogging, that might lend itself to other vague uses, computing power, storage of data, applications. These effects are brought closer to the location where data is gathered, the results, the outputs distributed but held near, not alienated in the far-off cloud, but surrounding us. Here in the fog, efficiencies of processing occur and short-term analytics are securely held. Things and things in a fog. We, too, in a fog. A fog made in San Francisco, courtesy of Silicon Valley tech company Cisco Systems, now available locally. The Internet of Things comes down to earth, distributed through all of our devices. It envelops us in the fog of fog computing while it computes, stores, and applies. These metaphors of fog, for that is what they are, take off, roll in like clouds and haze, and remake language and imagination. Fog that was once meteorological is now also technical. And if we were to think about mapping our world, about cognitive mapping, about getting our bearings now, and the fog, would we say that precision is possible and absolute? For we, or at least our devices, always stand at a triangulation of forces, our locations forever monitored and known, not just by us, but by all those parties interested in our movements. This pervasive fog bolsters techniques of precise tracking in space and time. We are never more found than now, in the fog of computers, which know better than we do where we are and who we are by the particles of self that have been shed from us in our online movements and will be forever archived, like a precious dust. But also, in contradiction, we may say that we have never been more lost, more unaware of where we are and what also occupies our space, trembles the atoms, courses through it, disturbs it, a turbulence, invisible to our eyes. As it suffuses our atmosphere, it maps, intelligently, and do we know to what ends this is done? We are in a fog. Can we see it? How do we see it? Can this fog of data streams be visualized? Does its gaseous haziness take shape somewhere? Over its history, photography has related to various phases of matter, the crystal, the liquid and the gaseous. Photography has led complex dances with water, with baths of chemicals, with silver halide crystals. Each material has had to be carefully deployed or kept distant to make an image appear. Photography is crystal-like. The process of photographing grabs something, an appearance, a configuration, extracted from a flow, snatched from a watery gush of life as it spills past. It freezes a moment. That is, a photo renders a moment crystalline. It holds a moment up in time, makes it spatial, visible. Long ago, ensconced in the silvery sheen of the daguerreotype, the image had to be oriented in many directions to be brought fully to light, the image glinted into being as a diamond glints. Faster lenses, which brought new cameras, fixed what would otherwise pass away, the six points of a melting snowflake could for the first time be contemplated through a lens, a moment of time made crystal to perceive the crystal. Photography overcame matter to preserve its image as crystals of frozen time. But in liquid terms, each image splashes into the world as a drop in an ocean of image droplets, a molecule amid an endless spume of images over which we surf. In photography's earliest days, in the form of daguerreotypes, photographers engaged in the stilling of fluids, 
in the search for the secrets of life in particles and globules floating in liquids, prior to life's conceptualization as cellular. Alfred Denay, for one, made images of breast milk, as part of a comparative analysis of the varying qualities between the milk of mothers and nursemaids. This stilled liquid, with its tiny blobs of fat, served as evidence for health policies. Every chemical photographic image has compelled fluids to produce a reflection of a crystallized fraction of a second, in a history which began, in Walter Benjamin's 1931 description in his A Short History of Photography, with the emergence of the image, of the technology, of the human from a droplet-laden mist. Photographic aura is a gaseous haze that imprints itself on the earliest photographs. Benjamin argued that photographic technology responds to economic structure, political fantasy, things invisible as such. Such a mist was the aura that seeped into clothes, bled into the environment, and was recorded by the photograph, as if a tangible atomic presence, an idea made recordable, touchable, inasmuch as the photograph was held in the hand and met the viewer halfway and hence crossed that other boundary of aura that exuded from paintings, the untouchable, the valuable. The photographic aura from the medium's early days is a trace of the cloying, damp fog of imperial history that threatened to linger on if those who found themselves represented were allowed to perpetuate their domination. Aura, from the early age of photography, was perceived by Benjamin as a sign of non-alienation, an intimation of fullness and certainty, which manifested as a corona around those few figures who came to be photographed. Aura nestled in the folds of their clothes. It absorbs its subjects, and their gaze looks out dreamily through it. The viewer is expected to look into it, into that mist, only to meet an evasive gaze. That erratic fog is of the past, of a world that was not accessible to all then, and is no longer accessible to us now, in a new digital age of photography, where the aura, if it comes at all, arrives from another place. For the fog has returned. It is everywhere. Fog is a metaphor for an unequal distribution of knowledge between self and state, for example, and also a technique of war, and it is an art event. It is everything and all of those things at once. Fog became something other than a natural environment when it was produced by Yukichiro Nakia, known for creating the first artificial snowflake. The snowflake developed into a program of techniques connected to war and the environmental conditions under which airplane engines might be defrosted. In 1944, Nakia moved to the Nemuro coast to study the artificial dissipation of fog, again with military ends in sight. For above all, environment is investigated in the context of war. If there are smoke screens as techniques of war, then there is a need for fog dispersal technology such as Nakia undertook when he carried out his research on sea fog in occupied Manchuria. Here there was thick sea fog, which needed to be dispersed in order to control the contested areas of the Japanese Empire. During the Cold War period, in the years following the Second World War and the defeat of the Axis powers, Japanese policy moved closer to American aims, as key elements of research involved aspects such as the artificial seeding of clouds and rainmaking, whether made to order, perhaps to alleviate droughts in India or perhaps, as in Vietnam, to prolong the monsoon season, disrupting enemy logistics. Weather prediction, one of the emergent sciences of the last century, emerged in tandem with computational thinking. 
This story of artificial fog re-emerges in the art world, where engineering atmosphere becomes a theme, art fog. As part of this interest in air, environments, climates, and so on, we may include inflatable structures. From hot air balloons onwards, these have moved from military applications to state aggrandizing functions to avant-garde utopian obsessions. To make an inflatable is to participate in the engineering of atmosphere, whether as a signal of high-tech mastery over nature or as a sign of proximity to dreaming, to utopian fantasy, to the romantic. One such example is the Fuji Group Pavilion for Expo 70 in Osaka, Japan, the largest air-inflated structure in the world. Inside this structure of compressed air and plastic, the first IMAX screen was debuted. Its structure was composed of air, and so it was continuously enfolding in on itself, responding to every wind gust, every shift in atmosphere. Elsewhere in this exhibit was the Pepsi-Cola Pavilion. Under the Expo's theme of progress and harmony for mankind, the Pepsi Pavilion was designed by Robert Rauschenberg's Global Initiative, Experiments in Art and Technology, EAT. Robert Breer made some little sculptures for the Pepsi structure called floats. They moved slowly and had battery-powered motors and little wheels, and although they moved, it was often so slowly that it took a while to notice. Breer's floats were moved by onboard motors at the rate of 6 inches per minute. They also sometimes emitted gentle sounds of birds singing, of sawing, or voices talking about a beautiful landscape. And as they did this, they were immersed in artificial fog. Indeed, on approaching the Pepsi Pavilion, a veil of fog shrouded the entirety of the origami-like structure. The artist in charge of this fog skin was Fuyiko Nakia, the daughter of the man who had in 1944, created the first artificial snow crystal and fog in the context of military research. Fog is a metaphor for being lost in the world. But the very property of fog as confusing can also become operative, used as a smokescreen. This, in turn, can be overcome as dispersion technologies are invented. Fog has been militarized, but it has also been made aesthetic and has been mobilized for art. And if fog is an image for our being lost in our contemporary environments in which left and right are confused and difficult to map, where technology confuses us and politics seem to operate under a different set of alignments and principles than those familiar from the post-war settlement of liberal and social democracy, then is it not also the case that fog, in the fog computers, in the fog systems, is also precisely about a certain and specific locating in time and space? Is fog in photography too? According to Walter Benjamin's schema, it is no surprise that photography reveals something obscured, but socially determining. The following anecdote might have pleased him, as it indicates a capacity within the photographic to communicate with its environment in ways beyond the control of official image gatekeepers. Under certain circumstances, all photography might expose something, that is to say, might become the vector of monitoring something that was meant to be hidden away, covert and covered, revealing an optical unconscious. Photography has done this at least once in a most remarkable way. Photographic film is radiosensitive and able to detect gamma, X-ray and beta particles. In 1946, Kodak customers in the U.S. began to complain about foggy camera film. 
Though Eastman Kodak established that farms in Indiana had been exposed to fallout from the highly secret Trinity nuclear test in New Mexico in 1945 and materials from the farms used in the cardboard packaging had contaminated the films, Kodak kept silent. Detonations continued, in the Pacific and in Nevada, from 1951. Kodak knew this because the company monitored radiation levels, and caught the radioactivity spike in snowfall that measured 25 times the norm some 1,600 miles away from the test site. They complained to the governmental authorities and an agreement was made that the film industry would receive information in advance of any nuclear testing, but no one else. Film stock was protected. Lives and livestock were not. This radiation entered the food supply, and as the report from the National Cancer Institute stated, as in the case of the weapons testing in Nevada, the dominant contribution to dose from radioiodine is from I-131 transmitted from ground deposition on pasture through the food chain in milk. There was already an acknowledged increased risk, especially for children, of contracting radiogenic thyroid cancer, a disease that often manifests, incidentally, as small, occult tumors through the milk pathway, this was known as early as 1953. Still, the tests did not stop, and farmers and the public were not warned until the early 1960s, even though all the while manufacturers were provided with maps and forecasts of potential contamination, as well as expected fallout distributions which enabled them to purchase uncontaminated materials and take other protective measures. Inside that casing is a camera, where rays hit chemicals, light brings to light what Benjamin is apt to term, referring to the photographs of Ajay, a crime scene, a tatort, a historical process. Digital photography, or digital information systems, as the artist Jeff Wall has noted, continues to engage and disengage with matter in the world in particular ways. Digital photography aims to redouble the efforts of chemical photography to overcome wetness, to keep the camera and its processes dry, to hold water far from the production process, in the distant and imperceptible electricity plants that cameras rely on to charge. Through this, the photography that is a product of the liquid crystal becomes dehydrated, drier than dust. As science finds ways to map, measure, and optically diagrammatize the paths of swirling dust in turbulence patterns or the gentle sweep of arcs and compound curvatures, it posits a relation, if only as another type of reminiscence, to the fragility or transience of the phenomena it apprehends. Digital image making is drawn to the dust, the particulate, which it has itself apparently become. It finds ways to make evanescence detectable, such as the stress factors on a curve, the agitation of the air, clouds, the wind, and turns it into outputs, into measurement, as in the von Karman vortex streets made by NASA's multi-angle imaging spectroradiometer. Thus movements can be tracked in digital mapping programs, visualized and analyzed. The dispersion of the virtually imperceptible, its behaviors over time, its pixelated parades, all can be brought to light. Dust has always been one of the plagues of photography, dust on negatives, lenses, inside cameras. It is even more of a problem in the digital world, the electrical charges within the camera draw dust particles in like a magnet, and these will appear in every image thereafter. And digital photography is especially susceptible to backscatter or retro-reflection of light off dust or other particles in air or water, 
which appear in the image as orbs of transparent, white, or rainbow circles floating in space. The matter phase of the digital is a return to the gaseous, a gas that is palpable because it is rich with dust. The camera tracks those dusty whirls of tiny movements useful to science and measurement, because it sees the dust, even when the dust should not be seen. The aura that was present at photography's birth returns otherwise, not as the mist of an imperialism happy to be named as such and through which subjects peer, but rather in the clouded air of industrial farming's dirt tracks and the dead leaves of a perpetual autumn or perverted nature. This is how it is presented by Jeff Wall in his 1993 composite digital image, A Sudden Gust of Wind, after Hokusai. Fog is turbid. Media can be turbid. Here is a pun. Turbid media is the name given by physicists to muddy water or particularly polluted air in which the particles of poisonous dust are so dense as to be visible. It is foggy water or hazy atmospheres. How to think about turbid media, not from the perspective of the physicist measuring propagation of light and other optical properties for determined ends, but from the perspective of a viewer speculating on a moment of optical engagement in which particles float on the air a moment in which there is an apprehension of turbid matter in apparent self-generated movement or pixels scattering widely. An aesthetics of turbidity, or turbid media, might be related to the pleasure inherent in watching particles float on the air, it is also related to trying to think, again, the notion of media, medium, what carries the signal, medium, what we look through to see the message, medium and what is placed between us and the thing to be seen, or medium is what is seen. Is this a scientific or a poetic endeavor? There are those who collapse the two. Take, for one, Michael Faraday, the 19th-century chemist and physicist, who described watching sand being cast from a hot air balloon, which seemed to be a golden ball, into the glittering light of a June evening in London. Ballast was thrown out two or three times and was probably sand but the dust of it had this effect, that a stream of golden clouds seemed to descend from the balloon, shooting downwards, for a moment, and then remained apparently stationary, the balloon and it separating very slowly. It shows the wonderful manner in which, each, particle of this dusty cloud must have made its impression on the eye by the light reflected from it, and is a fine illustration of the combination of many effects, each utterly insensible alone, into one sum of fine effect. If a cloud of dusty matter, as powdered chalk or road dust, were purposely poured forth under these circumstances, it would give a fine effect both to those on earth and those in the balloon. Sand, light, air, wind, chalk, dust, are banal elements. In their combination, in that specific moment, something extraordinary happens. Each turbid particle, each tiny part of this twinkling fog makes a mark on the eye, and what was insensible, inert, lifeless, becomes effective, remarkable, an amplification of life through an aesthetic sense of attention. Our age forces an engagement with materials, with old ones and new ones. Attention turns in laboratories to soft matter, liquids, colloids, polymers, foams, gels, aerosol mists, granular materials, and liquid crystals. These materials are ones that are self-organizing and atomically capricious. They possess capacities, such as liquid crystals birefringence, generalized elasticity, mesoscopic, intermediate scale, symmetry breaking, degrees of freedom coupled with responsiveness to inputs. 
Matter has history. How quaint some old matter such as clay might seem in the age of plastics, of throwaway plastic containers that pile up as toxic mountains and seep into the ground, in the sea. The throne mass that is clay seems like the good and pretty sister of the evil one who is thrown away but never disappears. Ernst Bloch wrote about an old pitcher, a dark brown, clumsy jug with a face on it. He imagines himself inside that jug, inside its belly. Bloch wonders what it looks like inside the dark, spacious belly of these pitchers. He would like to occupy that space, just as a child might actually sneak inside a large face, out of curiosity. Bloch treasured the cloddish and crude, the brown, heavy and inhabitable jug. Whoever looks long enough at the pitcher soon begins to carry its color and form with him. Not every puddle I step in makes me gray, not every railroad track bends me round a corner. But I could probably be formed like the pitcher, see myself as something brown, something peculiarly organic, some Nordic amphora, and not just mimetically or simply empathetically, but so that I thus become for my part richer, more present, cultivated further toward myself by this artifact that participates in me. That is true of all things that have grown, and here, in drinking pitchers, the people labored to express their pleasure and their deeper sense of contentment, to affix themselves to these implements of the household and the public house. Everything that was ever made in this way, out of love and necessity, leads a life of its own, leads into a strange, new territory, and returns with us formed as we could not be in life, adorned with a certain, however weak, sign, the seal of ourself. The jug grows like a plant grows. This jug is a product of labor. It takes its place within a culture of use. Selves are expressed through it, the maker's self, the user's self. Yet, it leads a life of its own, it leads us, what we are made with it in this journey. We are, Bloch thinks, made through and of that clay, a mud, composed of weathered granite rock, of decomposed feldspar, drawing water into its crystal structure. We are golems. He was the jug. Can we be the tetrapack? Can we be the disposable coffee cup that holds our cappuccino? These things arrive with us from far away and do not seem to contain us. Tetrapack makes little pyramids of milk, as well as colorful packages of juice. It sells these across the world. It has long done so. It now understands its mission to be embodied in the shape of the container that it invented in 1951. Its sterile, regular and rigid container that is as far away from a mammary gland as imaginable. Its corporate strategy, titled Deeper into the Pyramid, aims to deliver the milk pyramid to ever lower layers of the social pyramid, to those poorest people, who might have once had a cow in the hands to milk it, were they not now to be persuaded that these old practices are unhygienic, disease-ridden. These poorest people are projected to remain poor, but a little of something from a lot of people can add up to a lot, and so these bodies will receive pyramids of low-value milk derivative. This is the world of industrial, globalized capitalism. It has remade things from the bottom up, every practice, every process, every hand that is now not a set of fingers curling and uncurling around udders or pots, but rather just electrical conduits on touchscreen interfaces, triggering micro-events. Technologies are labeled as aseptic, clean, and green, and yet the rubbish piles grow higher and higher, and the sense of alienation extends. We know these new vessels to be our enemy, for now they are marked as the destroyers of our seas, 
our planet, and yet, as much as we revile them, their piles grow high. We are not asked to curl up inside them. Sometimes the foam on a cappuccino turns sculptural. Now it is the microfoam or froth in which our forms are sculpted or painted. We can order a selfie chino and an upmarket coffee bar, an image of our face on the foamy topping of our drink. Patrons send their headshots via online messaging app to the barista and are given the choice of either a cappuccino or hot chocolate as their canvas. These seem an emblem of our evanescent social form or foam, proximate bubbles, jostling, but not really touching, our moments of meeting brief and fragile. But froths and foams are especially transient. They are a nothingness held in time together and sold high, in the case of coffee, or productive of toxicity in the case of frothy pollution foams, such as those that course periodically through Hyderabad or New Delhi, a result of phosphate detergents and cosmetic waste gushing into rivers and turning them softly solid. Or the cyanide foams that insulate modern buildings but cause fires to spread, as occurred so fatally at Grenfell Tower in London in 2017. The particulate becomes particular. I am trying to say that everything is implicated in everything else, and that is why and how atmospheres bloom and seep. If that is so, then we need to understand everything, need a model of thinking critically that apprehends this multifaceted totality in which metaphor bleeds into and out of science, in which technology and materials emanate thought, in which thought turns material or can conjure a mood in which language generates a fog of ambiguity, a condensation of reference. Ambience is legible and engineerable. And if poetry, in its broadest sense, is the technique whereby atmosphere, mood, analogues, metaphors, layerings, and significance are deployed, where gatherings and overspills of language, image, idea overtones and undertones occur, then might it be the technique through which could occur an exploration and communication of the raising, harnessing, and manipulating of the political temperature of the times. Environment, atmosphere, the atoms of matter, particular particulate swirling in air, turbulences, from turba, which means in Latin either uproar and disturbance, or crowd, these turbulent crowds, of atoms, of entities, include the fragments of matter mobilized by liquid crystal to float on and across screens. These bubble forms of today's social environs include foggy pollution, as well as toxic foams and the froth of chemically polluted streams. The froth and foam that clogs rivers as toxic waste is a product of chemical effluence and climate change, and is also a symbol and fuel for our networked economy that extends into every coffee bar and every street, the networker with a microphone top latte in one hand, smartphone in the other. We have to learn to negotiate in the fog, to separate the froth from the substance, to turn the foam to protection, not suffocation. We have to find accords with matter, new metaphorical echoes in what is so unsubstantial but so fatal. We need different lenses to see this fog and froth, to see what it does and what it makes us feel, what atmospheres we, and it, are producing.